0: The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. Good morning everyone morning. welcome to our time of worship here at the bridge um, we um, are grateful to have this opportunity for us to gather and i'm josh bell i'm one of the elders here at the bridge i'm filling in for rob him and his family are out on vacation so we pray that they uh, enjoy their time away as a family and whatever it is that they're doing may god bless them abundantly let's open in prayer and then we will get started Father, we thank you for this time that we have to gather to come here this morning to lift up your name and to praise you. Lord, we ask that as we come in here this morning that you would eliminate all of the distractions, the cares, the concerns, and the struggles that we carry, and may we just open our hearts and our minds to the message that you have here for us this morning. Lord, just as the seven letters uh, written to these churches in in, uh, Asia Minor end with the words, He who has an ear, let him hear. God, may you give us ears so that we may hear your truth. And at the same time, Lord, may you give us hearts of action so that we may continually pursue you and push after you and and receive the blessings that you have for us. God bless our time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please open your Bibles to Revelation 3, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs. Feel free to grab one. Feel free to take it home with you. As we gather here this morning for worship and consider the letter written to the Laodicean church, as we're going to see, by the Apostle John, as revealed to him by the risen Lord, I'm reminded of the value that written letters have had throughout the years of human history. Unfortunately, with technology today, heartfelt letters are becoming a bit of a scarcity in today's society. Now we operate through emails, texting, social media platforms, et cetera, but even the use of those digital resources have led us down a path where communication to friends and loved ones has become rather shallow and less meaningful. I have never been one to really care to write letters or, or even really considered the value of receiving them, but I did come to appreciate them after I joined the military. I can remember in boot camp, the only acceptable means of communicating with others in the outside world was through handwritten letters. I began to notice that when restricted to that means of communication, I appreciated and valued the opportunity to receive and write letters to keep up on what was going on in the world and lives of others outside of our training. This process of communication became even more meaningful to me when I deployed overseas and receiving letters became a big deal. It was a means to disconnect from the reality of our current surroundings and the challenges we faced each day by turning our focus on reconnecting with the world back home. This was even more apparent when thrust into an environment where the dangers present reminded us that each letter sent or received could be our last. The receipt of written mail was sometimes a source of emotional struggles for troops overseas because if they didn't receive anything from others, their minds would begin to wonder if love and care for them back home was diminishing. There was a popular phrase in the military, one of which we would often joke about, though it wasn't funny when it actually happened, which was the phrase coined the Dear John letter. These letters were those where a person's spouse or the person they were dating notified them that they no longer loved them and had left them for another person while they were absent on deployment. These types of letters had devastating effects. The most memorable experience I had writing and receiving letters, one in which I will never forget, was a situation where I went on my second deployment without telling my parents. There's a lot more context to this we can talk about later. (laughs) I did this out of sheer fear of rebuke and judgment of my parents. Now, don't judge me here, but this was obviously a stupid and foolish decision on my part, and I own that. But what came out of it was very good and had a big impact on facilitating change in my heart. I don't remember all the specific details, but while I was deployed overseas the second time, I was dating Brandy. Now, thank the Lord that she never sent me a Dear John letter though I think nowadays she might have wished that she had. (laughs) But somehow, a short time in, I became so convicted of my sin that I wrote a letter of confession and requested forgiveness from my parents. Most of the letters written to my parents were to and from my mom, but what I received back in this case was a heartfelt letter of forgiveness and understanding from my father, along with some confessions of his own. His understanding and willingness to forgive me changed my perspective and the attitude that I had towards my parents and produced a heart change which helped restore the relationship that I had with my parents. Now, I tell you this in an effort to try to paint a picture of the importance and the impact that letters have when used as a means to communicate vital information with an intended outcome. In the days of these seven churches, letters were the primary and important means of communication. And as we work through this last letter sent to Laodicea in today's passage, I encourage each of you to ponder what impact a letter from the Apostle John likely had on any one of these seven churches. I could imagine each one of these churches eagerly longing for a letter from the last living Apostle, the one who personally walked with Christ as a close friend throughout his earthly ministry. But I also can't help but wonder, when the church of Laodicea received such a letter from John, were they filled with excitement Or did they cringe? Fortunately, as we're going to see, this was not a Dear John letter, no pun intended, to the church. But instead, this was a letter sent with care, concern, and love. Let us read Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. He who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Here in Revelation 3:14 through 22, we see the last letter written to the seventh church is the most significant and probably the most disheartening of each of these letters. In contrast to the other letters to the seven churches, this one is the only one that was void of any commendation or praise. The church of Laodicea was indifferent in their commitment to Christ. They were not fully committed. They had one foot in the faith and one foot in the world. Their faith was more of a badge. They were only going through the motions. They deceptively identified and gave the perception that they were Christians, but actually were more like the world around them. Before we go any further, I think it's helpful for us to explore the history of the Laodicean church. The historical and cultural implications intricately play into the instructions that Christ told John to be written into this letter. Additionally, I also think that it's often a widely misunderstood letter due to the lack of knowing the full context. Understanding the context will help us to grasp the purpose and intent of what was written to them and why it is so important. Laodicea was a city located in Phrygia, or Asia Minor, which we know today as modern-day Western Turkey. The city was seated in the Lycus River Valley and was located on the major trade routes that connected the seven cities we see in Revelation and also includes Colossae and Hierapolis, which will play a part in the letter as we'll see later. Laodicea reflected the splendor of Rome and was very wealthy, likely the wealthiest of cities in that area. To give a picture of their wealth, in AD 60, an earthquake destroyed the city and when Rome offered to send funds to help them rebuild, they refused and rebuilt using their own financial resources. They proposed, or they prospered in three major trades. First was banking. They were financially independent. And secondly, they were prosperous in the textile industry or in clothing manufacturing, which most notably was soft black wool, which will play into the letter later, as we'll see. And they were also prominent leaders in medical school, and supplies, most notably their eye salve, which also will play in later. Though located in the river valley, Laodicea did not have a usable water supply. The Lycus river valley, or valley riverbed was shallow, dirty, and dried up during certain seasons. Their water supply had to be plumbed in through about six miles of underground aqueduct and had a high calcium concentrate, which likely made it seem bitter to an outsider. Visitors who came there and weren't accustomed to the tepid water would spit it out instantly once they tasted it. Laodicea is mentioned by Paul in his letters to the Colossians in chapters 2, verse 1, chapters 4, verse 13, 15, and 16. And some scholars believe that the church of Laodicea was founded by Epaphras, whom Paul discipled. So let's look back at the text in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. As with each letter to the seven churches, the greeting is rooted in the divine nature and truth of Jesus Christ. Here, John writes, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the words of the Amen. The Amen here obviously is referring directly to the deity of the risen Lord himself and is indicative of Christ being the fulfillment of God's promises. We use the term Amen so often at the end of our prayers and sometimes loosely at the end of various statements. It is a term used to signify that what was said, so it shall be, or so be it. Here the term amen is applied to Christ himself and can be taken as, so it shall be, verily or truly, Jesus himself is the truth. Amen is derived directly from the Hebrew term aman, which means to believe, thus Came to mean sure or surely or truly, and is an expression of absolute trust or confidence, and eliminates any notion of doubt or error. Here in this passage, Jesus is identified as the Amen, and therefore this validates him as the source of all truth, the fulfillment of God's word and God's promises. All that Jesus is, says, and does is in its truest form always for eternity. Nothing about Christ can be doubted, and there can be no deviation from any aspect of God's character or perfect plan. Isaiah 65, 16 says, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. The word truth used here in Isaiah is the Hebrew word aman, and is essentially saying the God of truth. Amen. The very God or true God who will honor his promises to Israel. 2 Corinthians 1 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen for his glory. Here, God is the source of his own yes or his own amen. Again, Jesus is the source of truth. Jesus is ultimate truth. Christ is the Amen, the complete fulfillment of God's promises. John then further identifies Christ as the faithful and true witness. This doubles down on the fact or further affirms that Christ is the complete, trustworthy, and perfectly accurate witness to God's truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is absolutely, holy, completely faithful to God's word. There's no disconnect, there's no discrepancy in the testimony of God or in the testimony of Jesus. There is, they're one and the same. What Jesus says will happen exactly as he says it and exactly in accordance with God's perfect will and timing. Jesus is flawlessly faithful and trustworthy. Finally, John identifies Jesus as the beginning of God's creation. This is exactly what it says. We're all familiar with John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Revelation twenty two thirteen I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is not only the author of our salvation, but he is also the creator of all things. He's the head of the church and the rightful heir to the world and all that is in it which we're going to see as we work our way through the remainder of Revelation. One thing to note here is that during this time, there was uh, believed to have been the false teaching spread throughout the region that Jesus was a created being. Jesus was likely affirming his deity to remind the church that he was from before the beginning and equal to God the Father. If we let this sink in a little bit, when you see a letter with this sort of introduction, The person reading it better pay attention. Here Jesus is reminding them of his deity, his oneness with God, his power, his authority, his awesomeness. Doing this should cause the reader's mind to first rest in awe and the glory of the risen Lord, but should also recalibrate their motives and attitudes of their heart under the weight of his rightful position of judgment and authority. This sets the stage for the reader to wake up and pay attention. My prayer is that we do the same here this morning. Moving into verse 15, it says, I know your works. You're neither hot. or I'm sorry. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I know your works. This phrase doesn't just mean that Jesus knows the external works of the church and its members. This is much deeper. Jesus knows the works of the heart that you are neither hot nor cold. Hereby saying that he knows their works and that they're neither hot or cold but are instead lukewarm implies that he knows the motives and intentions of their heart. Jesus knows the hearts of these people are not aligned with his word but are instead selfishly and worldly motivated. As a result, he warns them that he will spit them out of his mouth. This is better translated to, as to vomit or to forcefully spew forth. It is a picture of utter disgust because of their indifference to the gospel and the kingdom. Jesus will reject them if they don't listen to what he has to say. This is where things get a little bit tricky. This passage has been interpreted several different ways. And if you're familiar with this passage, you've probably heard it said where, where Jesus says, would that you were either cold or hot, to mean that Jesus implores them to get off the fence and either be hot, to be on fire for Christ, to be wholeheartedly committed to him, or to be cold and reject him completely and just be worldly. I think further investigation of this presents a different and more accurate perspective. I mentioned earlier that Laodicea had tepid, bitter water, and those not accustomed to it upon tasting it would violently spit it out. Think of situations where maybe on a really hot day, you're outside working at the height of physical exertion. You're hot, you're sweaty, you're tired, you're thirsty. And so you go over and you reach for the drink that you had sitting out that had ice in it and it was cold. You take a drink and you realize it's warm. You lost track of time and and forgot that the drink had been sitting out. The ice melted and the sun brought it to a lukewarm temperature. What do you do? After you take the first sip, you realize it's not what you expected. You spit it out and you go refill it and get a new, cold, refreshing drink. On the flip side, let's say you have a hot cup of coffee. Again, you get busy. You lose track of time, you come back for a sip, and you realize that it's at room temperature. You spit it out, and you go make a new cup of coffee. This this happens to me all the time. People who know me know that I like to go to Quick Trip, and I get a little Quick Trip coffee, and I get to the bottom of it, and by the time I'm done, it's lukewarm. And to make things even worse, a lot of times it even has coffee grains in it, and I, I hate that. I spit it out, I throw it in the garbage. And now when I go there, I run the coffee first to make sure, and then I fill it This is the imagery of this pas- that this passage is portraying. But on a greater scale, though now, because you imagine that those same scenarios I presented, but the beverage was very, is dirty. It's contaminated while also being lukewarm. You'll take a sip and immediately discharge it in disgust. Here Christ is expressing a disgust for their current lukewarm, contaminated state and warned of the intention to soon spew them out. So what does this mean to either be hot or cold? I mentioned that Colase and Hierapolis were on the trade routes near Laodicea. Colase was about 10 miles away from Laodicea to the southeast and was known for crisp, clean, cold, refreshing water that was sourced from a local mountain stream. Hierapolis was about 6 miles away from Laodicea to the north and was known for hot springs containing minerals that were used for therapeutic and medicinal or healing purposes. So what is the significance of this? The water in these two cities was known for their sources. The refreshing cold water of Colossae was cold because the mountain stream provided the water, the cold water. The hot water in Hierapolis was hot because of the natural underground hot springs. If you think back to the drink scenarios, why was the beverage cold or the coffee hot? They don't get that way under their own normal. Or they don't get that way under their own normal conditions. They each have a source that provides the desired taste and temperature. When you think of the water of Laodicea, what happens if you send cold, refreshing water through a miles-long ancient aqueduct? What will it be like when it gets to its desired location? It's going to be lukewarm and dirty. If you do the same thing with the hot water, such as the springs of Hierapolis, what do you get? you get the same effect. The water will equally be lukewarm and dirty. Why? Because the water was removed from its original source. The readers of Laodicea at this time would have likely thought about these local water sources and recognized that they were being likened to their own local water source, which was lukewarm, contaminated, and disgusting, having no source to make them desirably cold or desirably hot. Here Jesus is trying to get them to understand that the church of Laodicea was lukewarm because they had drifted from the source of their true mission, ministry, and purpose. They distanced themselves from Christ and the work of His Spirit, which should have been the source of their spiritual vitality. Spiritually, they were not like cold and refreshing water that revives a weary and dehydrated soul to the community around them, nor did they have the therapeutic medicinal effect such as the hot springs of Hierapolis, on the community through the spreading of the gospel of Christ with a committed love and service to those around him. So what was their problem? Moving into verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I mentioned that Laodicea was very wealthy. In saying that I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, Jesus may have had in mind when the city was destroyed by the earthquake some 30 years prior, when Laodicea arrogantly rejected the financial help from Rome and rebuilt the city with their own money and their own pride. Additionally, the people of this church had essentially assimilated to the culture around them and had become dependent on the worldly works, desire, um, on the worldly works and desires and were no longer faithfully committed to Christ. The church was like an arrogant, independent, know-it-all teenager. They didn't need advice or help because their success was the result of their own doing. They relied on their own works, their own materials, and their own wisdom. They were spiritually void and in delusion. They operated in self-deception and pride. Jesus reminds them that they are instead, in verse 17, not realizing that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here, Christ is making the transition toward a spiritual focus, thus drawing their attention away from the materialistic, worldly, and prideful mindset that they had. In saying that they were spiritually wretched and pitiable, he's exposing the fact that despite being satisfied or content with their current worldly state of comfort and wealth, they were instead spiritually bankrupt, void of the Spirit of God, and in a miserable state of despair headed for destruction. In the eyes of God, they were pitiful. Despite being rich in worldly things, remember Laodicea was well known for their banking. They were instead poor, destitute, and broken spiritually. Again, with Laodicea being as wealthy as they were, to include those within the church, they had become dependent and prideful and were self-deceived into thinking that their wealth and prosperity... Were what mattered for them to be successful and happy in life. They were spiritually blind and could not see their state of depravity because they were blinded by their own pride and self dependence. And lastly, they were spiritually naked because they were exposed here by Christ in that He knows and sees their sinful deeds. They are not able to hide their true motives from the penetrating eyes of the omniscient, all knowing, Holy Son of God. Moving into verse 18, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here Jesus is inviting them to buy gold refined by fire, which is the pure righteousness and spiritual blessings that only Christ can give. I should point out that they or we don't actually buy this. Christ here is using the term to uh, buy to appeal to their prideful mindset of thinking that they can buy whatever they need. Using this phrase serves the purpose of facilitating the transition in their minds from a worldly mindset to a spiritual mindset. From pride to humility, from self-dependence to total dependence on God. Jesus is reminding them that only he has what they actually need. And so they should turn to him so he can freely give them himself, His bless, and his blessings to fulfill their spiritual need. Verse 18, so that you may be rich in receiving what Christ has to offer, only then are true riches experienced. No amount of riches or wealth in the world could begin to compare to what God has to offer us. Jesus gives himself and his blessings, and only then are we truly rich. We become children of God, heirs of God's eternal kingdom. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? I'm going back to verse 18, and then he implores them to buy white garments so that they may clothe themselves from the shame of their nakedness, may not be seen. Again, looking back at the context of Laodicea's culture and history, they were well known for their soft black wool. Here Jesus is making the connection of having their sin covered by his righteousness. In their current state, their nakedness exposed their sin. Here, in contrast to the material black wool of which they were so proud of and dependent upon, which symbolizes their sin, Christ is offering the spiritual white garments of righteousness that only he can offer. The pure white sinless righteousness of Christ that completely covers our sins. Psalm 32, 1 through 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. First John 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the last thing here in verse 18 Jesus tells them to buy salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. The third item that the Laodiceans were well known for was their medicinal eye salve, which was a pasty substance sold and used to put on the eyes to alleviate ailments and irritations. In the material sense, they were dependent on this medicinal substance as another means to fund their wealthy status. The worldly status that gave them a false confidence in their identity Unfortunately, they were completely spiritually blind, and they had the wrong ointment. Christ appeals to them spiritually in calling them to turn from their worldly pursuits and to put on the eye salve of the Holy Spirit so that he can open their eyes and enable them to see their spiritual bankruptcy. Psalm 146, 8. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Isaiah 42, 5-7. In John 9.39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, but those who do not see me may see, and those who see may become blind. So how do the Laodiceans fix their problem? Revelation 3:19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Repent. Jesus calls the Laodicean church to turn from their sinful wicked ways. They need to overcome spiritual apathy, turn away from the indifference of their spiritually lukewarm state. 2 Corinthians 7:10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Second Peter 8 or 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed." Second Timothy 2:21 through22: "Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart." Martin Lloyd Jones. Um, Has this to say on repentance. He says, The repentance means that you realize you are guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and your dearest in the whole world may call you a fool or say that you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. The beautiful part of this passage is that despite the or decrepit, spiritually apathetic state of this church, Jesus reveals that he loves them. And so therefore he extends the hand of grace and mercy to them By calling them to repentance, he hasn't given up on them, and we know this because he had John write this letter to them. Proverbs three eleven through twelve says, "My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights." The first half of this letter is Jesus revealing their hopeless condition their foolish pursuits, and their selfish arrogance. This rebuke is Jesus' provoking conviction, a conviction that leads to repentance, and repentance leads to God's abundant blessings. Here, Jesus in love is extending the opportunity to break free from their, in verse 17, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked spiritual condition. Jesus is offering hope, restoration and true healing spiritual healing he is seeking to save them from the path of destruction they're on and to bring them back into fellowship with god which will save them from rejection and destruction moving into verse 20 through 22 behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come in to him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers i will grant him to sit with me on the throne as i also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After calling the Laodicean church to repent, Jesus says that he stands outside the door knocking, asking to be let in. He's been shut out because they have abandoned the truth. They have allowed themselves to be overcome by the world's lust and its pursuits. And if anyone in the church was to repent and to seek him, if they were to let him in, he will not hesitate. He will come in and dine with them. So often we hear this passage portrayed as Jesus standing outside the door of a person's heart knocking. In reality, this is Christ standing outside the door of the church. Jesus is writing these letters to the seven churches. Churches as a body of believers, not specifically to the individuals. Yes, individuals are included, but this is a call to the individual churches. The work of Christ on earth is done primarily through the church body. A body made up of individual believers. We're not meant to advance the kingdom under our own will or in our individual pursuits. It's a collective effort of believers in fellowship, led by the Spirit of God, led by a pastoral shepherd, being sanctified together through teaching, admonishment, and encouragement. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. First Corinthians 12:27, "Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it." Back to verse 20, He says, "I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me." When Jesus says that he will come in and dine with him, this is an image of close, personal, intimate relationship and fellowship. When we meet new people and we want to get to know them, what do we usually do? We'll set up a meeting, we'll gather with them, and we'll have a meal. So you can eat and have time to to converse and get to know one another. Jesus is not literally going to come in and have a meal with them, but his spirit will be there. And if his spirit is there, what is happening? His work is being done. And there is fellowship between Jesus and the believers through that work. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, that is doing the work. A church is utterly dead without the work of the Spirit there. The imagery of having a meal together is likely consistent with believers fellowshipping with God through the feeding on His Word. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And Matthew 4.4, 4, as Jesus is referencing Deut- Deuteronomy 8, 3, he says to them, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word That comes from the mouth of God. Dining with Christ is that fellowship that we experience by saturating our minds with the Word of God and being moved to prayer and worship in that knowledge. In those moments of godly fellowship, the Spirit is moving in our hearts through His Word to incite within us a heart of prayer, praise, and understanding. Through His Word, we are satisfied in that we come to know Him, to trust in Him, we begin to understand His will and the purpose for our lives. And we grow to love him more. It is through his word that we gain knowledge of his character and rest in the peace of his perfect will, his sovereignty, and the blessings that only God himself can give that supersede anything that the world has to offer us. Lastly, as we get, uh, begin to close here in verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Also, as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ offers hope and victory. If the Laodicean church was to heed Christ's instructions in this letter, if they were to repent and turn from and reject their world worldly, foolish, wicked ways, and in faith seek to fulfill the commands of Scripture, they would therefore conquer and receive the crown of life. They would receive the rewards that God has to offer all of those who are His children. They would then receive the honor of reigning with Christ in His eternal kingdom. We conquer because Christ conquered. Those who walk in faith and obedience to Christ share in His victory. Second Timothy 2, 11 through 13 says, this, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless... He remains faithful. As we wrap this up, let us reflect on the implications of this letter as it relates today. I'll admit that when I was putting this message together, it did not take me long to realize that with a few minor word changes, this particular letter could speak directly and accurately to a good majority of churches in America today. We live in a time with a culture very much like the Laodicean church. America is very wealthy. We are dependent on our status as a world-dominant nation We are arrogant and prideful in our achievements. The nation as a whole is spiritually blind, and they continue to push God out of every area of society that might have the ability to maintain a godly influence. Our leaders continue to deconstruct and destroy God's design for our existence, the family, relationships, what we're taught, how we're to act, and most recently, even who we are as human beings made in the image of God. Many churches today are assimilating to the culture. And there is increasingly becoming no clear distinction of what is godly and what is worldly within the church. America and a majority of the churches are very much like the Laodicean church, lukewarm and apathetic to Christ-like pursuits. Many wear the badge of Christ on their sleeve but have no fruitful evidence of Christ in them. Scripture teaches us things in the world will continue to get worse. Persecution is coming in greater degree. As we progress through the remainder of Revelation, we're going to see the judgment that is to come. Will we be ready? Will we be found to be a church rooted in repentance and humility and obedience to God's word? If intense persecution comes to our front door, will we be able to stand firm in Christ? No matter the outcome, will our faith remain? I do believe this for the bridge. And I pray that we are only continually strengthened by God's Spirit in these dark times so that we will be a light to the communities around us. A light so bright that many in our communities will no longer be blind, but will now see the darkness around them and desire to run to that light that we have to offer them. If we remain steadfast in our commitment to Christ and adhere to the sufficiency and truth of God's Word, the reward is great, far beyond our comprehension. Each one of us should reflect internally and ask ourselves, are we wholeheartedly committed to the Lord? Do we believe the things that Scripture teaches us? Do we respond to Scripture as if we truly believe what it teaches us? Let each one of us, after hearing the message today, not be like the Laodiceans, lukewarm, apathetic, void of purpose, having been removed from the spiritual source, but instead may we seek repentance in every area of our lives. May our desire for the righteousness of Christ increase abundantly so that we are sanctified through the constant purging of our sinful desires and then having those desires replaced by, with a relentless desire to pursue the knowledge and wisdom of God through His Word so that we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ. May we as the body of Christ fervently work together to build one another up in the faith, encouraging one another in love, Teaching one another and serving one another, may we not become like the world around us, arrogant in our own abilities, dependent on worldly things, spiritually blind because of our sin. Instead, may we be completely dependent on Christ and the work of his spirit. In closing, I am not convinced that we are a church where Christ stands outside knocking on the door, waiting to come in. Let us, in light of that, let us be grateful for the grace and the mercy that God has bestowed upon the Bridge Church. Let us praise Him for the work that His Spirit has done and continues to do within this church body, and let us be humbly thankful that we have a church that genuinely loves the Lord, seeks to do His will, and stays true to the Holy Scriptures, and doesn't succumb to the pressures of an ungodly culture. But even in that gratefulness, let us not become complacent by letting down our guard, but instead may we stand firm in the faith, trusting in God's perfect plan for our lives and for the bridge so that we're not overcome by the trials, tribulations, and temptations of a world that seeks to draw our attention away and devotion away from the God of all creation who lovingly desires relationship with us and who waits eagerly to bestow blessings on those who will repent and turn to him in faith, those whom he joyously calls his children. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you so much for the time that we have here this morning. Lord, we thank you that we live in a culture where you uh, we have the freedom to come here to gather and to worship you and to praise your name. Lord, we are thankful that you have given us this word and this truth and that you continue to speak to us and to convict us. May we have hearts of repentance. May we seek out every area of our of our life that that robs us of our focus and our attention and our love for you. Spirit of God, will you continue to mold us and make us into the likeness of Christ and increase our desires to love you and to pursue you with everything that we have. Lord, may the bridge be a light in this community. May you use us as a source to spread the gospel message to those around us so that we can advance the light and push back on the darkness. God, may you be glorified as we go about our ways, as we go about the rest of this week, and may we be mindful of of being a good representation of Christ to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.